Welcome to The Populist. This is Kevin O'Hare. So I want to talk a little bit about this week's podcasts and kind of some of the assignments before I get into this episode nine where I talk executives with Dr. Craig Parsons. So this week there's three podcasts, but don't freak out because they're shorter than normal and the one is an interview and the other is a guest lecture by Dr. Shauna Meehan. So it's not like you've got two hours of uh, podcast to listen to. It's just that uh, Professor Parsons and I didn't get o- get to cover everything that needed to be covered in the podcast. So episode nine with Dr. Craig Parsons, we discuss executives, their functions, the differences between heads of state and heads of government, the different forms that executive take, how the different systems affect executive legislative relations, what coalition governments are, and the powers of executives. In episode 10, I discuss executive stability, which is going to be really important for answering your Unit 3 writing assignment. Episode 11 is another guest lecture by Dr. Shauna Meehan, where she discusses political parties, party systems, and interest groups. Okay, so make sure you're listening to all of these, and also make sure that you're peeking ahead early in the week to... um, you know, be able to know what you're looking for and what you need to do for your unit three writing assignment. Um, again, make sure to keep up on the reading and to look at the question early in the week so you have plenty of time to answer it. Okay, so without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Craig Parsons. And welcome to this episode of The Populist. Today we've got a guest on the show. We have Dr. Craig Parsons. He is a professor of political science and the department head of political science here at the University of Oregon. He's written many books, including A Certain Idea of Europe, How to Map Arguments in Political Science, and An Introduction to Political Science, How to Think for Yourself about Politics. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kevin. Um, so today we're going to be talking about executives and the executive branch of government in certain forms of government. Um, and so to start off, what, what do executives do? What is their responsibility? Well, so executives are, in terms of what they need to get done, right, they're the managers who... Uh, or like in a business, or if you picture a military unit, or you know any sort of organization, the executive, well, they they execute. So, and what that that typically means, two kinds of roles. One is uh, setting the agenda, coming up with policy, formulating policy options. Okay. Uh, and the other is then implementing them. Uh, so you know, once once your organization has done whatever process it has to uh, approve a policy option, then the executive uh, tells people what exactly they need to do to make it happen. Okay, and in in these executives, so there's kind of two parts to the executive. There is heads of state and heads of government. What's the difference between those? All right. So in so we have these executives in a democratic context, right? So mm-hmm. here we are talking about executives in a, in a democratic government. And um, so 
these democratic governments are also they are states, right? They are they are the government of a state, mm-hmm. uh, and those states, most of them, many of them, were created before democracy, right? They they used to be these undemocratic things with kings or you know they had various titles, but something like a king or a queen, right? Um, and so it was pretty obvious that the king was the head of the state mm-hmm. at that point. Um, now, then along comes democracy in a variety of forms. And so uh, in some democracies, the democratic system that was set up just basically made the head of state uh, into a democratically elected person. Okay. Okay. Uh, and that's basically the pres- that's part of the presidential model of mm-hmm. uh, democracy is you know like so President Trump is the elected head of state. Okay. Okay. Um, now in other democracies, including some of the really early, the first ones like Britain uh, that had previously been monarchies, um, instead what they did was they kept around their head of state in a symbolic role. So right, they they kept a king or a queen in mm-hmm. Britain, but they gradually took power away from that person, mm-hmm. and they instead created a person who's the head of government. Okay. Uh, and so that person in the British parliamentary system is called the prime minister. Um, and so that created this distinction between a head of state and a head of government. Um, so what head of government means, though, is that's really the person who really runs the daily affairs of the government. And then the head of state is, in some systems, a symbolic role. Okay. okay. Um, now, strictly speaking, in, in like the U.S. presidential system, uh, a textbook would often say that... Uh, the president is both of those things. The president is both head of state and head of government. Right, and their textbook does say, right. say exactly that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's splitting up the different role. Like, if yeah. it's not fused into one, like the presidential system, it's right. splitting up the different roles. Exactly. Yeah, For yeah. the symbolic reason of having a symbol of the overarching unity of the country through mm-hmm. the monarchy, right, is, is the classic thing. I mean, another thing that's just worth noting, right, is that um, it, it's useful for a government sometimes to have uh, someone who really has to run the daily affairs of the government and someone else who does symbolic stuff and, like, goes to funerals and things uh-huh. like that. And yeah. we we have a sort of slightly different adaptation to that in the United States. The vice president is sent to funerals. Right. Right? And stuff yeah, like yeah. that. So uh, even if those roles are fused in the U.S. government... Uh, we still have sort of created a role that takes a few of the symbolic uh, responsibilities off the weight of the main leader. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so we've talked a little bit about some of the like basics, getting them out of the way. Um, but these executives don't look the same around the world. They take these these different forms. And can you talk to us a little bit about the different forms they take? Sure. Yeah, well, and the the crucial differences in their forms are how did they get their authority, right? And then how does that, in particular, how does that authority relate to the legislature? Okay. Um, because, I mean, in terms of their actual, uh, their form in terms of, like, what do their offices look like and what do they do during the day, they're actually very similar. So okay. that a president or a prime minister is the face of the government. They talk on TV. They have a cabinet of, of ministers, or we call them secretaries in the United States, who run departments like the 
you know, the State Department and the Agriculture Department and the Commerce Department and everything else, all governments have that. Yeah. And that's that's the executive. But so the big difference, though, between a presidential executive and a parliamentary executive is how does that top person get into that role, right? Mm-hmm. And so though there are a few asterisks on this, uh, basically a presidential system is one in which the top executive is directly elected. Mm-hmm. Okay, now... Anybody who knows anything about American politics knows that the asterisk is we have this thing called the Electoral College, uh, which sort of complicates that. But roughly speaking, it's awfully close to being directly elected. And most presidencies in the world are simply directly elected. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas the prime minister gets to be the head of that government uh, and running its executive because first you have a legislative election. So all the members, if we're talking, say, the British example, so they they have the House of Commons, and there's an election in which all the British people vote for their representatives in the House of Commons, and then a majority in the House of Commons determines who's going to be the prime minister. Mm-hmm. And so the prime minister, in a parliament, the executive in a parliamentary system, nobody ever, no voters ever vote directly for that person to become the head leader. Instead, they vote first for votes that get aggregated into a majority in the legislature, and that's what tells you uh, who's going to be the prime minister, who's usually the leader of the largest party that is represented in the legislature. Right. Okay, so then, but then there's this third form that is a little bit different and not so common, but it's in France, which you're an expert on. Sure. uh, The semi-presidential system. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. So... Um, so it, yeah, it very much, uh, it really has these two systems stuck on top of each other. Um, and so, I mean, the, the basic mechanics of it really are just literally those two things together. So France has a directly elected president who gets elected every five years, uh, and they have, uh, a prime minister who, uh, gets into office because every five years they also elect the members of what they call the National Assembly. Mm-hmm. And then then the, the prime minister, well, the prime minister is a little bit trapped between these two forces because the prime minister, in order to become the prime minister, has to both have the support of the majority in the National Assembly and the acceptance or the nomination of the president. Okay. Um, and so... Uh, and so that, by the way, that, that in this mixed system, the president in France is the head of state and the prime minister is supposedly the head of government. Okay. Now, I say supposedly because the way – there's been a big tug of war over time in this French system, like who has the real power? And it has mostly shaken out that it's the president. Mm-hmm. And so – the president, pretty much, the prime minister is like the first secretary of the president who really uh, does the bidding of the president. And okay. so it, it mostly operates as a presidential system uh, in its main lines. Um, although there are times, like if the president is super unpopular or whatever, that the prime minister steps forward. So it's, it's, oh, it's, okay. it's, it's, it can shift back and forth, and it is sort of complicated. But it's, it, it really is just, you know, these, these two things sort of stuck on top of each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, the the president is elected how and uh, directly direct yeah. election direct yeah okay majority okay yeah and we we 
talked a little bit about like runoffs and stuff. In, oh yeah, in, well, in the okay. past. So there is that complication. <laughs> right, yes. Right. The the French electoral system is like basically like the one in the United States, except uh, somebody has to get fifty percent. Mm-hmm. And so if nobody, you have one round of an election, and if nobody gets 50% in the first round, then the top two vote-getters go on to a second round two weeks later. Mm -hmm. And once you only have two people running, then by definition, somebody gets 50%. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so in these different forms of, of the executive, okay, the different ways that they can be shaped, how does this affect the relationship between the legislature and the executive. Yeah, well, there there are huge differences there. Okay, um, that really have a lot, uh, you know, huge effect on power and you know who, who's really running the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and they go; those effects sort of run maybe in ways that aren't exactly what you would think when you first look at how these systems are set up. So you might think that a parliamentary system where the head of the executive, the the prime minister, only gets to be the head of the executive because of the support of this majority uh, in the parliament, Um, you might think that that would make the legislature very powerful, right? Right. Because now the prime minister has to really care, it seems, day to day uh, of keeping the support and favor (laughs) of of, of a large number of those people in the parliament. Um, and, and at the same time, you'd think that whereas a president is elected independently uh, mm-hmm. and has sort of their own basis of support and can sort of say, you know, screw you, Congress <laughs> or Parliament or whatever, uh, if they're not getting along. Um, uh, but interestingly, in most cases, that's not quite really how it shakes out um, okay. because – so the whole notion of a directly elected president in the presidential system, which was invented with the American Constitution, um, is, as students of politics tend to know, right, is premised on this notion of the separation of powers, right? right. So you've got your parliament over here that we call Congress in the U.S., and you've got your president over here, and they're both elected in separate choices. And the whole reason for that setup of government is that they're going to balance and check each other so that nobody fully runs the show, so nobody can be dictatorial too much, right? Mm Because the other other bunch is going to gang up on them if if necessary and keep them from doing bad things. Um, And so what that means is, though, even though the president uh, has a very personal and direct relationship to the people and is often, you know, a very, you know, the most by far salient person in American politics or in other presidential systems, um, they are, they, it's built into the system that whatever they want to do uh, faces a bunch of people who are elected in a different way. It often turns out that, you know, the president doesn't control the parties in Congress. Um, uh, and so it's really a system designed to limit the powers of the executive to a substantial right. degree. Right. Okay. Now, parliament, in parliamentary systems, um, instead, everyone is elected together, right? So you get a, a legislative election every so often, you know, it's typically four, every four or five years in most mm-hmm. countries. Um, and then the majority is determined in that election, and, and the majority brings along with it its prime minister, right, the whoever they want to be prime minister. Um, and so these people are sort of elected as a team, and the prime minister is the head of the team. And what that means is, by definition, a, a prime minister cannot be in power unless they have a majority 
in the legislature. Okay, right. Now, sometimes it's a little complicated. Sometimes it's a coalitional majority, like there can be more than one party, and so the prime minister may have to be doing some deals right. uh, with some people who aren't exactly, and I, I say he or she, uh, should, you know, maybe dealing with some people that aren't exactly in the same uh, part of the political spectrum. But nonetheless, even if it's a coalition, these people are... They, they went into the election almost always knowing that they were going to support this person as prime minister. And so it's sort of a, this team has won the election. Right. And so now um, that creates a presumption that the legislature is going to support the policy agenda of this prime minister. Um, mm-hmm. That can change. And um, especially if, if, a, if a prime minister has a small majority, like if they just barely won the election, mm-hmm. um, then a prime minister can be a, a weak executive. Yeah. But broadly speaking, uh, you can. It, it tends to be the case that prime ministers are more able to, they're, they're more confident they're going to be able to implement their policy agenda, and through their term they typically can, mm-hmm. because a parliamentary system does not have a separation of powers. The powers are fused between a legislative majority and, and, a, and a parliamentary leader. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a president, sometimes they have a lot of power. If, if they can get their stuff through Congress, uh, the, again, this the legitimacy that comes from with being a directly elected leader can make a very popular president can do a lot. Mm-hmm. But boy, if Congress uh, wants to block it, they can at every step, right? Uh, and and so the a presidential system is actually intended to have to create a weaker executive. And even though we, t- even though the American president is is a pretty powerful person. Actually, they're not as powerful as most prime ministers in parliamentary systems. Well, wow. so so the the presidential system with the the separation of powers kind of creates this dual legitimacy, right? And that creates issues for them being able to put stuff through. Whereas in the legislature, it is it's fused, yeah. And most of the time, it's easier to get their legislative agenda. Done. Yeah, most of the time, and then you know you can always come up with scenarios in which it's not quite the case. But mm-hmm. you know, so even. If, if you look at times when the American president has been in power and controlled the Congress, okay, so we, we can talk about the recent Trump administration, which controls both houses of Congress, um, or you can go back to the first uh, the first two years of Barack Obama's presidency. Right. Um, uh, even in those periods, the president runs into all sorts of trouble. Passing things, so Barack Obama's signature thing was his health care plan, Obamacare, in those yeah. in those first two years, and yes, Democrats were basically behind it, but the Democrats in Congress were not exactly the same thing as Obama in in, in terms of how they thought about the really complicated issues in that. Um, they were all elected separately out in their own constituencies from all sorts of different places across America, and. There were very intense negotiations between the Barack Obama White House and Democrats in Congress. Even the Republicans, you know, they didn't quite need to worry about it. They could pass it without them. Right. Uh, but that didn't necessarily, that didn't get rid of the fundamental issue of the separation of powers, that Obama really did need the support mm-hmm. of those Democrats in Congress. And then we've seen the same thing, right, with uh, with Donald Trump uh, on a variety of issues, whether, issues, whether it's his tax plan uh, or... Uh, now you know a bunch of foreign policy things have come right. up. His uh, 
uh, friendliness with Russia has gotten him into a lot of trouble because mm-hmm. most a lot of congressional Republicans don't feel the same way. Right. Um, and so even when parties stretch across the separation of powers, the separation of powers is a really fundamental feature mm-hmm. of the division uh, uh, of government and um, and and thus a president can never really be as confident of their ability to do what they want in policy-wise um, as a prime minister, especially if, if a prime minister has a single-party majority in a parliamentary system, they can... They become a very, very powerful leader. They can do extraordinarily, um, you know, radical things. They can make big policy changes. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, so you mentioned a, a, a single party majority, and, and yeah. I want to go back to earlier. You talked about coalitions. Yeah. So, with coalitions, what what exactly are you talking about? With sure. reference to those, yeah. Sure. So. Um, so in your parliamentary system, right? Uh, you have this. National election every typically four or five years. Um, it's possible that, uh, depending on what your country is like, a single party might win a majority of the seats. Right. Okay. And that, that's actually going to, it's going to matter a whole lot what your electoral laws are. Right. right? You, you've we've, you've yeah, covered some of that, right? We covered that class, last right? week, yeah. So especially if you have an electoral system like the one we have in the United States, a first past the post uh, system, uh, which the British also have. Right. Uh, that at least makes it fairly likely that, that a single-party majority will result because it rewards big parties. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, however, um, you know, parties are, I mean, or con- countries are fragmented things, right? Especially the bigger the country, typically, the more diverse it is. And, you know, it, it's, it, you shouldn't expect democracies to produce single-party majorities most of the time. Right. Um, and that's especially true if you don't have a first-past-the-post electoral system. Right. If you have a, any sort of proportional representation electoral system, then that's going to tend to favor some smaller parties, a, lo- a larger number of smaller mm-hmm. parties. And so, okay, so then you're going you're gonna to have your election in your parliamentary system, and you're going to end up with no party by itself having, having a majority of the seats. Uh, but since in order to create to, to uh, anoint a prime minister, mm-hmm. a majority of the people in the legislature have to vote for that person. That means you have to form a coalition. So a certain set of parties have to get together that add up to having a majority. Okay. Uh, and they declare their support for the prime minister. Um, and there's, and as you can imagine, right, if these are different parties that just prior to this were at least partly competing, mm-hmm. right, to win these seats. Because even if they're parties that are sort of friendly, that right. may, they may know that they're going into the election sort of as a coalitional team, but they still would like their party to win more seats rather than their friendly party sure. next to them, right? That's <laughs> yeah. why, I mean, they're, they're still separate parties. Right. So they go into this. Um, the election shakes out the way it shakes out. Uh, and then they all look at each other and say, okay, yeah, we're going to form a coalition. Um, but then they haggle over the conditions. And right. typically the biggest party, the prime minister will usually be the leader of the biggest party, whoever is, you know, that party has chosen as its leader. Um, and then the prime minister will say, okay, the party number two, party number three, however many parties they need to slap together to, to get a majority, um, what do you want? To be to give your uh, it's, it, officially it's called uh, confidence in the prime minister to, to vote mm-hmm. for this for me as prime minister and they'll say you know let's say it's the green party they'll say we want our guy or our woman to be the minister of the environment 
Mm-hmm. So we're going to control that policy space, um, and 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 often they'll have like extensive written deals. Like right. we get this position, and the whole government is going to support our our country's membership in this environmental treaty, or something. If it's a green party, right, right or something right. like that, or you need to dismantle that nuclear power station or mm-hmm. something like that. They'll have some very specific policy things that they force the biggest party to agree to in order to get this additional support. Right. Uh, and then that continues on through the life of a coalitional government. Um, because when they come back, back to pass legislation in the parliament, they again need to get their whole coalition lineup behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, they do these deals. I mean, of course, even in a single party majority, that kind of stuff happens, right? I mean, the kind of thing I've just described is also familiar uh, in uh, in a presidential, you know, in Congress, right? You're you're always trying to pull together enough people to vote for something and right. giving them whatever they, it is they want, mm-hmm. right? So that happens in all legislatures, um, but uh, it's it's sort of super explicit in when you have a coalitional government uh, in a parliamentary system to even set up the executive. First, you have this round of that deal making, right? Uh, and then the the whole way along, the the prime minister sort of has to pay attention to those things. So it's almost like an, a a big negotiation to start, yeah. To where you get kind of a program of government that that coalition is going to focus on, exactly. And then it's constantly renegotiated through the life of that government, yeah. Which you know can sound and can be pretty cumbersome, um, oh, but on sure. but on the other hand, you know, I mean, people who like parliamentary systems will say, well, wait a second. Uh, what that means, you know, so you had an election, no single party won the majority, so the country has expressed itself to say no single party should be running the show. Mm-hmm. And so big policy decisions should be made uh, in this sort of consultation. Um, whereas the danger of a presidential system is that you get a single shot vote for a uh, a leader who then doesn't depend for their office uh, on the support in the legislature. Mm-hmm. And you can have a one thing that a presidential system can leave you with is, for example, a very unpopular president who is nonetheless stuck there. You're, you're stuck with that person for four years. Yeah. Um, there's no chance that the legislature will remove its confidence and the government will fall, which is something that can happen in a parliamentary system. The, the Congress can't get rid of the president unless that person commits a crime. Right. Right? Right. Uh, and so advocates of parliamentary systems will say, yeah, coalitional governments can be unwieldy, but they are actually a sort of adaptive and flexible way in which government can reflect uh, different voices in society. Mm-hmm. Now, with, regarding these coalitions, are there different kinds of coalitions? Like, do we do we see, I guess, multiple types that that occur in, in different places? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's going to depend a whole lot on your party system, right? Right. Who are the big players, or big and small players? Mm-hmm. Um, and party systems vary hugely across countries. I mean, they come in right. some configurations. Um, you know, a fairly common one is that you have a big, biggest party of the left and a biggest party of the right, and then some smaller players. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, in France, it's more or less common. For example, in the you know the parliamentary side of the semi-presidential French <laughs> system. Uh, sorry for the complications, but that's what it's like. Um, Typically, the left is able to form a coalition because 
they, the big party of the left cobbles together some small allies, or, or the right is able to form a coalition. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, Germany, uh, you have, again, big party of the left, big party of the right, mostly, although the big party of the right, of the left, the Social Democrats, have gotten a lot smaller right. in recent right. years. Um, but the sort of, at least until recently, the classic pattern of German politics was um, that... Or well, for for many decades, uh, that there was a middle party, uh, the Free Democrats, who were sort of a pro-business, uh, sort of we would think of them as like business Republicans, um, uh, who were in who thought of themselves at least as being between the right-wing Christian Democrats and the left-wing Social Democrats, mm-hmm. and they were sort of kingmakers, um, and that meant and they did shift back and forth. Actually, I mean, they more naturally allied with the right. Yeah. But there, like, there's this long period in which the coalition is the right and that sort of quasi-centrist party, and then they shift in the early 1980s. They shift and went the other way. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, no, it was the other way. They were they were <laughs> aligned with the left and they went to the right. Anyway, yeah, yeah. So sometimes, so one configuration you get is um, is kingmaker, small kingmaker parties. Okay. Um, that's also, for example, uh, what you see, or at least have seen in important eras in Israel. Mm-hmm. Israel has a whole bunch of tiny little, um, especially religious parties. Right. They're, they're quite radically religious. They're never going to get a ton of the vote, but they have very devoted voters, and so they're not, not going away. Mm-hmm. Plus, Israel has a proportional representation electoral law that allows little parties to survive. Um, and they often become incredibly powerful because... They, the other big parties may not be able to ever quite get enough to have a majority themselves. And those, that last marginal seat mm-hmm. that makes the coalition uh, can extract a lot of promises, right? In the same way that in the U.S. Congress, if you are the last senator who's needed to vote for something, <laughs> you can get a lot for that vote. Yeah. Uh, and so kingmaker, small kingmaker parties um, can, get, can have a surprising amount of influence that is you know, not at all related to their actual size in society. Right. So and every now and again we hear in the news this... Well, there's a grand coalition. Uh, yes. What what are they talking about with the grand coalition? So a grand coalition, I mean, the idea there is that it's sort of stretching across what you would normally, much broader than you would normally think of a coalition. And um, it's almost always uh, the two big rival parties getting together. Okay. okay. So Germany has this right now and has had it for uh, a few points in time uh, recently where... Although with lots of reluctance, no, nobody likes this. Um, <laughs> essentially, the two big parties, uh, they, they're not doing that well. They don't even win quite enough votes that they and their other closest immediate ally could form a government. And so the only real way to form a working government is for the two biggest parties to form a coalition. And so... Um, and they sit down and they draw out a very explicit, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, uh, we can, we're going to control this policy area, you're going to do that one. Um, and, I mean, in Germany they have a high level of compromise between the parties, so they're basically able to make it work. Um, boy, if, if they were more like American society these days, it would be a little hard to imagine yeah. right? that working out. Um, but grand coalition, so grand coalitions really only arise in countries... Um, that at least at that around that moment have pretty high degree of sort of compromise mm-hmm. among the major players, and they're fairly rare. Um, you're probably going to ask about a 
minority government as well? Or do you want to talk, get into sure, that yeah, complication? I, I, no, absolutely, because um, this is this yeah, is important. Yeah. Um, so there's, uh, I mean, one other wonky possibility that sometimes comes up um, in a parliamentary system. So, so let's say uh, nobody can form a majority, right? Mm-hmm. You, no party is big enough to do it by themselves, and they all hate each other, and uh, you know, the, and nobody <laughs> can agree to support some other party's leader as prime minister, and you know, big surprise that, that can happen. Right. Um, but you need a government, right? Everybody agrees that you need somebody to be keeping the trains running on time at the very least. Um, and so one possibility is what's called a minority government where um, a essentially a party that is not part of the government um, and is not joining the governing coalition will agree to vote in a prime minister. They'll say, okay, today... Uh, as we, you know, we just had the election, we're going to agree to vote for so-and-so from this other party as prime minister, but then we're not actually part of that prime minister's coalition. Mm-hmm. Uh, the coalition is a minority. It doesn't quite have enough votes. Um, but in, just in order for the country to be governed, mm-hmm. um, another a, a party might say, yeah, we don't agree enough with you to actually be part of your team in governing, but we will allow you to set up the government by voting for you today. Uh-huh. Um, now, that often has the effect of whoever did that, it sort of makes them kingmakers right. uh, in a permanent space because now, so that minority government, every time they want to pass any substantial legislation, it's going to have to come back and they don't have a majority mm-hmm. uh, put together. And they're going to usually go to those same people and say, okay, uh, what do we have to do to pass this piece of legislation? Mm -hmm. Well, and I saw that uh, in studying Portugal before uh, their financial crisis is their socialists had a minority government where they had to go to the social Democrats. And it really made it kind of – they were super vulnerable. And the second that the social Democrats were like, you know what, they're not doing what we want them to do. We're going to have a vote of no confidence and – and move on from yeah. from these guys. And yeah, unsurprisingly, it creates a very weak government. Right. Um, but sometimes you can't do anything else, right? Right. Um, well, and then there are there situations where governments aren't formed yet. Oh yeah. Well, that just keeps going. Isn't Belgium? Belgium. Well, had yeah. I think the longest. Is Belgium there now? I actually haven't paid I attention honestly, to I don't. I know when I was there. I think there, they have a government right now. When I was there in February, yeah. they didn't have a government. And yeah. it had been hundreds so, of days. So, yeah, Belgium yeah. is very fragmented, has a whole lot of parties, and they don't agree with each other very well. And, um, yeah, there have been periods where Belgium has had a national election and then has gone for as long as close to two years of just coalitional negotiations, like trying to figure out who would be who, who could put it together, right? Um, and what you get a caretaker government in that case, yeah. right? Basically, whoever was the previous government before the election, they they don't. Fortunately, they don't just all walk away from their jobs <laughs> once the election happens. They stick right. around until a new government is actually set up. And of course, such systems are intended for that to not be very long. You're supposed to have an election and then have a government that reflects the election. But in a parliamentary system, if nobody if they can't strike a deal, you can have a caretaker government that lasts a very long time. Mm-hmm. Which again, that that's a really weak situation because you that government does not have legitimacy to do anything. They they can right. they are caretakers. They can keep things going, but they can't exactly push any sort of agenda. Right. Okay. So earlier we we talked about um, oh, kind of the the partisan powers that 
a president or a prime minister has, where the, the prime minister has much more influence over their party members. Okay, so there's there's these different powers that they have. The formal powers that a president has versus a prime minister. What's the difference there? Um, formally speaking, I mean, they're... Uh, at a broad level, they're not that different. Uh, at a detailed level, they can be quite different, but it varies so much from country to country that it's okay. very hard to describe. Okay. So, you know, the um, the conditions, uh, you know, so formally in all countries, uh, there is uh, um, a... You know, there, there's a distinction between normal legislation and various kinds of decrees or, um, you know, sort of administrative regulations that the executive can put forward without passing it through the legislature. Right. And we have those. And, you know, there's a lot of tension and fights in American politics about what presidents can do without getting congressional approval. So like the executive orders exactly. and things like executive that. Executive orders, which is yeah. a space that has grown over time. Um, and basically you have that same thing in parliamentary systems, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you tend to have a little less of it in parliamentary systems because, again, without a separation of powers, prime ministers don't need to lean as much on executive orders and things. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but so now, actually, the, probably the most important thing to highlight, though, in those differences of powers, um, and maybe in a later conversation or session, if you're talking more directly about legislatures, this mm-hmm. this will come up this the most. Would have come, Is that your next up, one? No, it's oh, no. The, it was oh, one okay. that just happened. Well, so agenda yeah. setting, the, yeah. the, basically the control of the legislative agenda is probably uh-huh. the most important formal difference. Um, and uh, roughly speaking, in presidential systems, uh, the president does not control the agenda of the legislature, right? The right. leaders of Congress can, if they don't want to talk about a bill that the president wants to propose, they just don't. Right. Right. Um, although that's not true in all presidential systems. The Brazilian presidential system, the president does substantially uh, have some control over the presidential, uh, over, the, over the legislative agenda. Okay. Um, so, but in most presidential systems, that's conceived of, that, that's, a, that's built into the notion of separation of powers, that mm-hmm. the president can't control the legislative agenda. Right. Um, and then it varies in parliamentary systems how much the prime minister can directly control the agenda of the legislature. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of them, and especially the really classic parliamentary systems like Britain, um, the prime minister fully controls the legislative agenda. So again, you're in this fusion of powers logic Mm-hmm. where the legislative majority and the prime minister are elected as a team. And so it hardly makes sense in a British system that the prime minister wouldn't be able to control the agenda of what the legislature sure. is going to do. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that is part of what makes a British prime minister a very powerful person, uh, assuming they have a decent majority. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, because then they, they can totally control exactly what the legislature talks about. Um, uh, but then there are others uh, in Italy and in uh, so Germany. The legislative agenda is sort of negotiated between the prime minister and the leaders of the assembly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 
in Scandinavia, the assemblies tend to have some of their own legislative control. So there's a bunch. It's sort of along a spectrum. Um, right. With a with most with a U.S. system being you know the legislature is really autonomous and can just refuse to talk about the president's agenda, uh, and then a whole bunch of different options in between out to a British style system where the executive totally controls the legislative agenda. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so so to kind of wrap this up, because we've covered a, yeah. a, an awful lot of ground here in a, about a half an hour or so. So which system actually creates the more powerful executive? It is... Now, of course, like with so many things in politics, you, anything you say needs to be followed up by except. You know, <laughs> there, there are exceptions. But broadly speaking, it really it's a parliamentary government that mm-hmm. is creates a more powerful executive than a presidential one, even though that's not what you would... I mean, just from the name of it, you might think that a yeah. parliamentary system is dominated by the parliament. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you might think that the average member of the British House of Commons has more power, more influence over policy than the average member of the of the U.S. Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not how it shakes out. Uh, because the executive is elected as part of this team, um, the presumption that they're m- most of the time going to line up behind the prime minister um, is really strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the prime minister, uh, well, especially in the British system, controls the agenda that goes on in the legislature, right? And so mm, the, the default expectation is mm-hmm. that the prime minister is, is going to set the agenda and pass their policy priorities. Yeah. Um, whereas the default expectation in the U.S., even when the same parties are in power in the branches of government, is that, no, Congress is always going to give the president problems. Yeah. Right? Uh, and so so now some of what we see as executive power in the United States has arisen in response to that. You know, you, so you develop the executive orders. You, you develop a whole bunch of more direct ways in which the president does claim some quite direct policy power mm-hmm. by sort of an end run around congressional power. Right. Um, and so... When you look at the details, yeah, certain U.S. presidents have in some ways pulled off some powers uh, that, uh, you know, expanded their powers in certain ways. Um, But the systems are set up such that a parliamentary system is going to tend to produce a a more powerful executive. Yeah. And it is kind of counterintuitive, especially to those of us that are from the U.S. and grew up here because we're so used to hearing in the media, oh, the president is the most powerful person in the world and, and all of these things. Yeah, so. well, and uh, and of course, yeah. I mean, a lot of that's just about that it, we're the most powerful country in the world. Sure. Um, but but yeah, we do, and you know, and it's not to say that the president is not powerful. The president mm-hmm. is powerful, but um, you know, presidents. If you look at the long uh, history of you know presidents trying to pull off big new policies, um, whatever it is, if you you know go back to Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal, or uh, Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society, or Barack Obama and Obamacare, mm-hmm. um, or a bunch of you know Ronald Reagan's attempts to cut back the welfare state. Yeah, um, these all those influential presidents had some success, but a lot of failures. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, FDR was a, you know wartime president. He was unusually powerful. Um, unique circumstances. Very unique yeah, circumstances. Yeah, yeah. But, but the, all those other folks. Um, were at least as frustrated as victorious mm-hmm. um, because they operated in a system that they just had they, even little things they wanted to do. They needed the approval of a lot of 
uh, Congress people who were elected separately and had their own different concerns. Yeah. Whereas if you look at, say, Margaret Thatcher, a really influential British prime minister, uh, or some other, you know, British uh, or, or and some other European prime ministers who have come in with a, you know, really strong policy agenda, boy, if they win a good election and they have a single party majority behind them, Mm-hmm. They can rewrite the rule book in a big way, and I mean Margaret Thatcher really changed British society. Yeah, uh, she you know she had an agenda very similar to Reagan's and did a lot of things that Reagan would have loved to do, uh, but she changed Britain much more than Reagan did the United States mm-hmm. because she was in a parliamentary system, right? And that fusion of the executive and legislator exactly. really, really empowered. Yeah, yeah, well, it basically meant that there was no other strong institutional check. Mm -hmm. on that agenda. And, you know, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Well, that's one of the really big debates uh, about institutions in democracies. Uh, You know, there's a good argument to be made. Well, if a party really wins an election big and and they have gone into it with a campaign built around a big new policy agenda... Well, of course they should be able to change things because that's what the expression of the public uh, you know, voice has mandated. Right. Um, on the other hand, there's also some really good reasons to say, wait a second, we don't really want our policies to whipsaw back and forth with uh, sort of waves of public opinion. What we'd like is to, yeah, we have these elections and we do want government to be responsible uh, and responsive to those elections, but it's not a bad idea to build in uh, these checks and balances and separation of powers such, such that uh, no one election allows someone to just radically change the system. Right, 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 right. No. Um, okay. Uh, if there's not anything else you need to add. Yeah, that'll cover it, I would think. That, yeah, no, that's that's been great. I want to thank you for, for coming on. This has been fantastic. My pleasure. All right. Well, I want to thank Dr. Craig Parsons for coming on the podcast. Make sure you're keeping up on the reading. Make sure that you are keeping up on your quizzes. And as always, post questions on the discussion if something wasn't clear or you need something clarified. But until next time, have a good one. Mm-hmm.